This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Matthew chapter 19. Continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, looking today at Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Uh, we're going to study this morning up through verse 26, which seems to end in the middle of the passage, and in a way it does. Uh, I think that uh, the, the chapter division here does a, something of a disservice. You know those are not inspired. They were added much later. Uh, and you'll notice verse 30 says, many who are the first will be last and the last first. And then chapter 20, verse 1, picks up with four, the kingdom of heaven, as if to explain what Jesus meant when he said, many who are first will be last and last first. So to put a break there seems uh, less than helpful, especially because you come to chapter 20, verse 16, and Jesus says, so the last will be first and the first last. In other words, Chapter 20, 1 through 16, is effectively an explanation of verse 30. And in, our, in this passage in chapter 19, verse 27 picks up with Peter's comment to Jesus, uh, which really sets the discussion off on a related but different direction. And so, Lord willing, what we'll do this morning is look at verses 16 through 26, and then next week look at verses 27 through chapter 20, verse 16. Well, this morning we're looking at 16 through 26, so let's begin our reading God's Word with verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, uh, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Father, we pray this morning that you would open to us your word. This is your truth, and we pray that you would nourish our souls on it 
We pray, Father, that you would draw us to Christ, to believe in him, and to grow in our belief in him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be relieved to know that I am not going to stand here before you this morning and preach that money is bad. Money is a means to an end. Money is a necessity. Money is God's provision. It is the reward for hard work and for risk-taking. Possession of money is extremely helpful. A lack of money can be extremely stressful. However, the main reason I'm not here to say that money is bad is because I have to preach the text before me. And this text is not about money being bad. In fact, this passage is really not about money at all. It's about idolatry. So let's take a look. It begins with a man approaching Jesus. Matthew tells us down in verse 20 that he was a young man. And the term Matthew uses could refer to someone roughly between 20 to 40 years of age. Nice to give such a generous breadth to the word young, and yet even at that, I no longer make the cut. Luke tells us in his gospel, Luke chapter 18, that the man was a ruler, uh, probably a synagogue ruler, an official in a synagogue. Uh, And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that the man was wealthy, which of course is, is somewhat foundational to the passage. Well, this man, as Jesus is uh, going along, approaches Jesus with a question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, unlike some of the people who came to Jesus with a question, there's no evidence that this man was trying to trap Jesus or to trip him up with this question. Nothing that would make us think that this man is anything less than sincere in the question he has. Something is weighing on his heart, uh, something of great significance. You see, this man is thinking about something that we all should be thinking about, and that is, what's going to happen to me when I die? I pass from this world, where will I be? How can I be sure that I will be in glory, that I will be in heaven and not in hell? Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And it seems that this man, like many Jews, thought that there was some one good thing, something super that you could do uh, that would clinch for you eternal life. But the question is, what is it? What is that thing? And he asked, Jesus, what's your opinion on this vexing, this difficult, this troublesome question? Well, Jesus answers him with a question, as he sometimes uh, does to sort of make the man think about not so much the answer he's looking for, but the question that he's asking. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. What's Jesus getting at here? Well, he he recognizes that this young man is on the wrong track altogether. Uh, It's not that he can't find the right answer. It's that he's asking, in a a real sense, the wrong question. The young man really does think he can do something good that will earn him a place in heaven. And Jesus is saying to him here, look, you want to talk about something good that you can do, but you have to recognize that ultimately only God is good. 
Now, Mark and Luke uh, tell how the man approaches Jesus and refers to him as a good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, Jesus wasn't saying he wasn't God. He certainly wasn't saying he wasn't good. But the focus is there on Jesus. Here, the question that Matthew records has to do with the, the, the nature of what is good. And so Jesus is basically saying, let's think about what good means. Ultimately, there is no one good, and there is no real good deed that any of us can do, any of you could do. Jesus would never say us, include himself, in our fallen condition. But that there's nothing that you can do. Only God is good. Only God ultimately, therefore, does what is truly and perfectly good. And so then he adds to that, let's, you know, once we clarify what we're talking about by good, that God is the standard for what is good, not people. He says, well, if you would enter life, believe in me. Right? Wrong. It's somewhat surprising that he says to the man, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Does that surprise you? Is Jesus saying here that we're saved by works? Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that if a person were to keep the commandments perfectly, he would be right with God. Now, that's barring our fallen condition in Adam, which we thought about earlier in the shorter catechism, that we have fallen in Adam's sin. We, too, are guilty before God, if not for our own sins, than the sin of Adam. But apart from Adam and his sin, that, that guilt that comes upon us, if a person were to keep the law of God perfectly, he would be saved. But no, in the sense that Jesus is saying to the man here uh, that no one keeps the commands perfectly. But you see, Jesus is exploring where this man is. What is his view of the law of God? What is his view of himself and his relationship to God's law? That's, that's what Jesus is getting at. That's why I asked him this question. Jesus is, as we see, going somewhere with that question. Well, if you would have life, keep the commandments. That's what he says to him. Uh, well, the man comes back with another question. Well, which ones? You know, maybe, maybe there's some commands that mean more to God than others. It's like, you know, what do I have to study for for the exam? No need to learn all of this if I can just learn what I need to to get by on the test, right? That's education as we know it today. Uh, no need to overdo it. Well, the man says, well, which ones? You know, which commands is God really concerned about? Where do I need to devote my uh, efforts, concentrate my attention in order to do those commands that God really is concerned about. And if I just zoom in on those, maybe I'll get in. So Jesus sort of plays along and suggests a few for him. And he quotes there in verse 18 from the second table of the law. Uh, he quotes there the sixth commandment, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, back to the fifth, honor your father and mother. And then he throws in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus himself would later say is part of the summary of God's law, the second great commandment, which really summarizes the, 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 these later commandments. You know, the, the Ten Commandments divided into the first table of the law. There's first four commandments that have to do with our relationship to God. Shall have no other gods before me. Uh, shall take, uh, make a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. All basically God word in their orientation. And then the second half or second table of the law 
were the last six commandments that were, that were horizontal, that had to do with human relationships. Honor your father and your mother. Uh, relationship to authority. Uh, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. All having to do with our relationships to one another. And those are the ones that Jesus quotes here. And uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself pretty much summarizes those, those human-directed commandments. And so the young man then proceeds to confirm Jesus' worst fears about him by responding, all these I have kept. So confident in his own obedience. And no doubt in his own mind he thought he had. And yet his, 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 his answer betrays a superficial view of the law of God. Superficial view of his own heart. Superficial view of sin. He must not have been present when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Where he taught that obedience to the commandment is more than just outward behavior. But it also involves the very thoughts of our hearts, attitudes of our hearts. To commit adultery is to violate the seventh commandment, to be sure. But to lust after someone in your heart, while not as evil as actual adultery, is nevertheless to break the seventh commandment. Because God is concerned not just with outward behavior, but with our hearts. And in fact, the outward behavior grows out of the thoughts of our hearts. But this young man still had a problem. You see, even with his supposed obedience to God's law, something was still missing, something lacking. He says, what do I still lack? You know, even as confident as he was in his obedience, he sensed that it wasn't all there. Something was missing. Something wasn't right. He still lacked certainty. He still lacked assurance as well as having in, in, in mind that he could do something, some great obedience, some feat of supererogation that would endear him to God and earn him his place in heaven. And so Jesus answers his question, what do I still lack? You know, I think I've obeyed, I think I've done this well, but I just sense something's missing. And so Jesus answers him. And Mark tells us that before Jesus said these words, he looked at the man and he felt love for him. See, Jesus had compassion for this man. He felt for this man. He loved him. He loved his sincere concern over his soul. He loved the man's zeal, misguided, uh, superficial perhaps, but nevertheless real, this zeal for the law. He loved this man for the concern that he had to deal with the fact that he felt like something was missing, something absent in his life and his relationship with God. And so then Jesus said what he had to say. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And Come, follow me. You know, if you reduce what Jesus said to just the verbs, it still makes sense. Go, sell, give, come, follow. In effect, Jesus was saying to this man, you may have kept those other commandments, at least outwardly. Let's, let's grant that for the time being. But let's have a heart check here. And let's start with the first commandment. Let's start with the first, not only of all the commandments, but the first of the Godward, God-focused commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's see if that's true for you. Let's see if you are devoted to the one true and living God over anything else. Go. Sell, 
give, come, follow. It's quite an invitation, really. Jesus was saying to the man, get rid of your stuff, trust God to provide for you, and come watch me change the world. Come watch me change history. Come be a part of what I'm doing in the world. You know, the, the, the Bible doesn't say that the man gave him an answer, at least a spoken one. It doesn't record any response verbally to Jesus. It just says that when the man heard this, he went away. And he went away grieving. Literally, the word means he was grieving. Why? Because he had great possessions. Or more to the point, his great possessions had him. You ever find that despite your profession of faith, despite your knowledge of the Bible, despite your attendance and service in the church, something's missing? Maybe you've never voiced it, but you resonate with this man's question. What do I still lack? What's not there? Why do I still come up empty? Well, it may be, even if you're not trusting your own obedience, but trusting in Jesus, it may be that you lack what this man lacked, and that is a wholehearted, nothing-held-back devotion to Jesus. Or to put it another way, it may be that there is an idol that stands between you and Jesus. And while your mouth professes devotion to Jesus, your heart expresses its devotion to another God, to an idol. And like you, this man would not have thought himself of himself as an idolater, and yet Jesus exposed to him that is that that was exactly what he was. Maybe he's exposing that to you right now. We are all idolaters, after all, you know. Calvin's quotation is often cited simply because it's so memorable. The human heart is an idol factory. Now, we're not referring here to a production plant that's been shuttered due to a slow economy. Not that kind of idol factory, but a, a place that produces idols, I-D-E-I-D-O-L-S, idols, idolatry. Uh, our hearts are prone to produce idols. They're bent as they are by sin. They want to turn from the one true and living God, always looking for some new idol to worship. And that idol can be just about anything. Popularity, success, academic uh, achievement, athletic accomplishment, whether that of your own or your favorite team or perhaps your children. A longed-for husband or wife, toys, some serve obviously destructive gods, alcohol, drugs, porn, although all idols, even those that seem benign at first, ultimately destroy. They all leave you empty. They all bring you to ask, what do I lack? What's missing? Why do I come up empty? An idol, biblically speaking, is not so much an image before which you bow as it is basically anything you look to other than the Lord to meet the deepest needs of your heart. Security, comfort, reputation, joy, fulfillment. Well, this man did serve an especially popular idol, a particularly powerful idol. He served money. Now, Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount that you cannot serve both God and money. 
And that was true for this man, and it's true for us. The Lord our God is a jealous God. He will not share the devotion of your heart with anyone or anything. And this man was devoted to his possessions. And so when Jesus forced a choice upon him, he chose his possessions, and he walked away. In some ways, this was a disaster for church growth. And here was this sincere, wealthy young man, make a great leader, probably be a tither too, you know how helpful that would be. Well, Jesus didn't chase after him. Jesus didn't run him down and say, whoa, wait a minute, not so fast. Let, let's talk about this. Let's see if we can't work out something here. No. He let the man turn around, walk away, and go serve his God. What Jesus did do, is make a comment to his disciples when he said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, the repetition emphasizes it, magnifies it. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why is it hard for a rich person to be saved? If you've ever thought about that. But one thought that comes to my mind is, have too much to lose. Too comfortable here. The rich, which we have to admit, biblically speaking, would include us, have to have a lot of faith to believe that heaven is going to be better than what we enjoy here. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. The poor, the afflicted, the deprived, the persecuted often have nothing to lose by following Jesus. It would not take them long to sell their possessions, give that little bit to the poor, and follow Jesus. Now, that's not to say that being poor is innately virtuous or righteous. Poor people can be consumed in their hearts with covetousness, envy, greed, and bitterness, just like anybody else. But they do have less to lose in this world than the rich. And plus, wealth has a certain power. And it's possible, like this man, that before long we stop owning it and it starts owning us. There, there's a power to uh, desire it. Uh, we read earlier Paul's, uh, Paul's statement that whatever was gained to me, I count but loss compared to Christ. Now, wealth can be a blessing of God, but it can be a loss to us if it becomes a substitute for God. And the desire to gain it can be very powerful. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, The love of money, not money, but the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evils, and the desire for it have, has led many from the faith and to pierce themselves with many a pang. The love of money can be a powerful thing. Well, this man was entrapped by that. Protection of wealth can be burdensome. When you have it, you have to protect it from thieves, from loss, from inflation. You have to maintain it. You have to insure it. Before long, you find out it's owning you. You're not owning it. But Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. And a popular interpretation of that has the eye of a needle being a gate into Jerusalem, and the camel has to be stripped of everything and be on his knees to enter the gate. Well, uh, imaginative, but, but not what Jesus was saying. Uh, fanciful, but, but wrong. Actually, a camel was the, typically the largest animal there in the, the, the Near East that they would have. 
that we would think of, and the eye of a needle, literally the hole in a needle, would be the smallest opening that they would be aware of normally. And so Jesus is saying it's, it would be like taking the biggest animal and putting him through the smallest opening. It's, in other words, impossible. And he actually uses that word uh, just in the next verse or two. Well, the disciples are astounded. Well, who can be saved? Reflects the assumption they had that, that wealth was evidence of the favor and blessing of God and that the wealthy can't be saved. <laughs> What's going to become of the rest of us who don't have that obvious expression of God's favor and God's blessing? Well, Jesus doesn't answer that question directly. doesn't tell them who beside the rich would be saved. He tells them how the rich can be saved. He tells them how anyone, by nature enslaved to his idols, by nature not prone to turn to God, how anyone can be saved, how we can be saved. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. By his grace and power, God can turn our hearts away from our idols, from money, security, whatever it is, and turn our hearts toward him. And his point is, Jesus' point here is that left to ourselves, it's impossible for any of us to be saved. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. We're by nature hostile to God, as Romans 8 tells us. With God, all things are possible, even the salvation of sinners, rich sinners, sinners like you, sinners like me. With God, all things are possible. Do you remember how John, Apostle John, ends his first letter? First John is a book about assurance. In fact, it answers, in a sense, what this man is, is asking. How can I know that I'm going to be saved? In fact, John, in chapter 5, 1 John 5 says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. He wants them to know. He wants us to know, to be certain that we will be with the Lord when we die. And in the next to the last verse in that letter, he writes this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, This is the true God and eternal life. And you hear there that theme that occurs in the Gospel of John, that to know God is itself eternal life. But he doesn't end there. One more verse. Do you remember the last thing he says in 1 John, after he says that this is the true God, this is eternal life. The last thing he writes in the letter, the last verse is this. Little children... Guard yourselves from idols. Because like the rich young ruler, we would try to find life in something else. This is the true God and eternal life in Jesus. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Keep yourself from substitutes. Don't devote yourself to something other than the true God, than the one who is himself eternal life. Because ultimately something else falls short. Everything else falls short. Pursue another God and you will always ask, what do I still lack? Pursue Christ with all your heart. You will never ask, what do I still lack? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who redeemed you on Calvary's cross. You shall have no other gods before me. Nope. Money isn't bad. 
But letting money or anything else come between you and Jesus is bad. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to look to other things to meet all of our needs. But Father, you are our strong tower. You are are our refuge. You are our fortress. And Father, we take refuge in you. Father, tune our hearts and put in us the instinct to run not to other things, but to you. Trust in you alone for this life and the life to come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.